0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The other people podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free, more than 560 episodes and counting your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done I think it's really beautiful. <laughs> Jesus. Did What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's
1: like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Okay. Just one person at right. just one okay. time. Hey, okay. this right. is
0: the Other People <laughs> right. Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It is nice to be with you. I have Ingrid Rojas Contreras on the podcast today. Her debut novel is a national bestseller. It's called Fruit of the Drunken Tree. It is available in hardcover from Doubleday, and it is due out in paperback in May of 2019, if I have my dates correct. So, uh, very pleased to have had a chance to sit down and talk with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. And I must confess too, am I supposed to say Ingrid Rojas Contreras <laughs> when I, uh, say, uh, like when I say, uh, a Latina name, am I supposed to use like the Spanish pronunciation if I'm being honest, I kind of feel like when a gringo does that, it's a little annoying. It's like, okay, we get it. You took Spanish. You can roll your R's. But I also, you know, what's the right thing to do? I am genuinely perplexed. Sort of like when, you know, I've talked about this, like somebody knows Spanish or uh, knows French, for example. And, uh, you know, you're like, oh, I went to Marseille and they're like, oh, Marseille, you know, it's like, okay. Okay, take it down a notch. We get it. You're cultured. So I had an excellent time with Ingrid, and uh, we went for a little walk after the conversation. I showed her where to get food, and then uh, she went and walked around a uh, cemetery Apparently, that's what she does whenever she visits a city. She goes to to the cemetery or to some kind of cemetery, which I find interesting. Uh, I got some mail from a listener named Thomas. He says, hey, Brad, I fell asleep while driving the other day. It was about 5 a.m. I was driving home from work. I nodded off in the middle of a highway off ramp. Luckily, no one was hurt, but I got my car stuck in a ditch. I have fallen asleep behind the wheel a few times now, but this was the first time I drove off the road. I'm scared that I'm going to cause some real damage one day to myself or someone else, like uh, I'll veer into oncoming, tra- incoming traffic or something. But this night, when I ended up in the ditch, I didn't feel afraid or upset. I felt so calm. I felt so grateful that I live in an age when it's so easy to get a tow truck in the scene. Fifteen minutes and $179 later... I was back on the road. It was painless. The tow truck driver was friendly. He'd just come from North Carolina. Anyway, I don't think muggers should be made to strip naked in the streets. The Thomas Conestam episode, episode 561, gave me a nice case of wanderlust. It's easy to forget that there's a whole world out there that exists apart from my little space. Keep trucking, Thomas. So if I call, uh, if I recall correctly and thank you Thomas for uh, writing to me I have uh, some thoughts to offer here. Uh first of all with regard to muggers being made to strip naked in the streets what Thomas is referring to is a little bit of conversation that I had with Thomas Conestam in the last episode where he was telling me about how he got pistol whipped in Venezuela. I don't even know how we got to I, like so- somehow my mind went to like the penalty for mugging somebody <laughs> should be that you have to get naked and and like walk home and i was joking kind of i was like also sort of curious like would that work you know would that be uh effective in curbing uh crime i don't know i guess it's also like a violation of rights and humiliating would also create like public spectacle that could be upsetting to uh people but uh you know it was the it was i was in the flow of conversation i think you guys get it wasn't entirely serious. As for this uh, driving into a ditch, Thomas, I think that you might want to get checked to see if you're narcoleptic. This sounds like narcolepsy to me. If this is happening repeatedly where you're nodding off and uh, driving off the road, then I think you might be narcoleptic, and I think you might need to take medication, particularly when you are driving long distances or driving when you uh, are in a state of uh, fatigue. Because, it, you know, you're only going to get lucky so many times. And even if you don't get injured, you don't want to hurt somebody else. So I would get that checked out. I say this as somebody who has uh, several, you know, mildly narcoleptic members uh, in my family. My sister's sort of that way. I have like an uncle who can like, just like doze off at the dinner table. I have some really good sleepers in my line, which I'm a bit envi- you know, envious of. I kind of wish I could do that. My older sister can sleep anywhere. She gets tired. It, it, it's over. She shuts it down. So thank you, Thomas. Take good care of yourself. Drive safely. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Her debut novel, the national bestseller, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, available now in hardcover from Doubleday. Here she is, folks. This is Ingrid Rojas Contreras.
2: There's something about his face that immediately puts you at ease, and it's also like a very large, very large face.
0: He's got Seth Meyers has a large face. Yeah, like how like unusually large?
2: I think so. Like when I was on on stage, like one of the things that I was thinking was like, wow, there's a lot of surface area. He, th- he, there's a lot of room in which to, for an expression to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I
0: think a lot of times people who are gifted comedic performers probably have something interesting uh, in their facial expression. That would make sense, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. But he's incredibly charming, just the nicest person.
0: And he's done, I think he's done not only a good job of bringing writers onto his show, which is something that used to happen in late night. Mm-hmm. comedy TV like Johnny Carson used to do that but then it sort of fell away a little bit Letterman did it sometimes it was like the last guest you know um but I also feel like Seth Meyers has been a pretty sharp um critic of Trump and I don't know he, I think he's been pretty astute in a lot of ways and bold and I don't yeah
2: know. I'm I'm in love with everything that he's he's doing on his show and I used to watch him on SNL so it was you know been seeing him for a long time um yeah, and just all the writers that he's had on. I must have seen all the interviews when I you know, right before going on, just to try to imagine what it would be like. But um one of the things that I, you know, was not prepared for was there were there were like pasties in the green room. There were like tons of like really nice Wait, Yeah, you- like uh like nipple pasties.
0: Okay. Yeah. I didn't expect that. I know. So what? Like what? There's just like a bowl of pasties back there.
2: Yeah. Which I (laughs) I took and I've been giving to women in need. Are they brand? Are they branded? They're they're like like Heidi Klum pasties.
0: What does that even mean?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Her name. Her name is on the package. Oh, she has her own brand. She has her own brand. They're actually really nice. They have like a silk. Was
0: well, still, where's mine? Where do I do? I,
2: I should have brought you one. I would
0: wear some pasties. Yeah. I, I didn't even know. I mean, I knew that pasties existed. I didn't know that Heidi Klum had her own line. And when you originally said it, I thought like it would like they said late night with Seth Meyers on them or something, like a coffee mug or something. But no, that would be nice. But no,
2: no, there was a coffee mug. Um, Did you take it? Yeah. No, I got a whole bag of goodies. It was it was incredibly nice. It there were chocolates in there. A T-shirt, a mug. Did you get a Um, selfie
0: with him or anything like that? Yes.
2: And he also wrote me a a nice note. Wow. Yeah. That's great. He's like gentleman, like top notch.
0: Now I feel like an asshole for not having a gift bag.
2: (laughs) I know. Where's my gift bag? (laughs)
0: Um, I should have some other people pasties made. It's on my list now. Uh, But this is a great, I mean, that's great. That's a great uh, opportunity for you. Did you freak out a little bit backstage? Were you nervous to be on TV? I did.
2: Yeah, it was it was very nerve wracking. My I had my mom with me, backstage, which was nice, both because she's never understood what I do, and so it was a nice way for her to be like, oh, so you just wrote some words, and for some reason,
0: people on people, are interested yeah. in having you on national television.
2: <laughs> um, and yeah, but but yeah, waiting waiting to go on stage is just mm. nerve wracking.
0: And then once you get out there, did you find any kind of comfort zone? Did he, I guess he set you at ease a little bit?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, like right, so right before going on stage, um, it, it was kind of a jarring thing to happen, but it also made me less nervous. I was, there's someone whose job is to just look at your outfit and make sure that everything is in place. And so this woman is looking me up and down and she goes, it looks like you have a veiny boob. And I was like, "What? <laughs> what do you mean?" So I just like started to look down at myself, and the way that they had mic'd me, like the 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 cord of the mic was going over my breast, and it was making this veiny boob look. Yeah. And so they were they were ready for us, and they were like, "Yeah, can she come out?" And we were like, "We have a situation <laughs> with the mic." <laughs> um, and so there were like two. There were two. Um, Two people who were trying to figure out where to put this this uh, cord, and then finally it, it came to me that we, if we put it down the middle, it would like disappear because right the fabric is flat.
0: These are the it. intricacies of being on television and production i 've yeah. been through this before, but like there 's always like wardrobe people uh-huh. like attending to every little detail yeah. of a person 's like shirt and like do the buttons align and <laughs> these things actually do matter though I mean you kind of want if you 're going to be on camera, you kind of i
2: 'm glad that she caught it. And then, so it was fixed and then I was just walking out and that was,
0: and and I was on stage. Okay. okay. So now you're on stage, people are looking at you, the cameras are rolling. Uh, Did you experience any kind of like surge of panic where you like detectable, like heart thundering in your chest kind of thing, or did you just zone out and do it?
2: It was, it was very surreal to be, to be on the set. And then I, he asked me one, the first question, I think I like blacked out for a second And then came back and I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be.
0: Yeah. See, I feel like I would be, I feel like I would be a little bit out of body. Yeah. I would be like the self-awareness of like, oh my God, I'm on the show. I'm like watching myself on the show as I'm on the show.
2: Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah, that happened. Um, But then it, you know, and then I kind of like looked around and saw the people in the audience. And then I was like, okay, like I'm I'm here. I have, you know, have to do this and be present for all of it.
0: Did you, did you, uh, you didn't go through a commercial break with him, did you?
2: No. Okay. No we didn't. I
0: always wonder like what they say. Like I've read about Letterman, like he doesn't even talk to the guest. Like they go to commercial? Yeah, like they go to commercial or and no. he's like not even saying anything to them. Oh wow. But I mean I mean occasionally you would see him lean over and whisper something or you know, but I'm always interested in that banter, like in between. Like the you know, the actual taping, and then when they go to a commercial, and they're sort of you know it's a little bit more informal mm-hmm. but you didn't have that moment with
1: him,
2: no, only at the end he he was telling me, I think I can't remember now, but someone someone he knew had just gone to Colombia, and he was telling me about where they were,
0: okay, yeah, so you're from Colombia, yes, born and raised in born
2: and raised in Bogota,
0: okay, which is mm-hmm. uh, like where your book is set, and why don't you, for people who are listening who have not read, Give kind of a broad overview of mm-hmm. the novel just so people can have kind of like a point of entry?
2: Yeah, so, so Food of the Drunken Tree is my first novel and it's autobiographical and it tells the story of two girls who are growing up in the 90s. So there's car bombs and uh, kidnappings and Pablo Escobar is in the background. And, um, one, one girl has been, her family has been displaced by the civil war and that's how she comes to Bogota. And the other girl is middle class. So the, the girl who's displaced, uh, comes to work as a, as a maid in the middle class home. So these two girls, um, develop a friendship and, but what the violence of the, of the country starts to creep in on their relationship until, you know, the, everything is kind of torn apart.
0: So what, what is the, I mean, I know you're from Bogota. You lived through some of this, or at least were, um, you know, had proximity to some of this, but what about the origin of these characters in your Mm -hmm. mind? Like, where did the book begin for you creatively?
2: So, it, so it had to do with kind of like the the autobiographical uh, bit that the that the story is based on. Um, so we used to um, have all these young girls who would stay with us, um, and they would live with us, and they would they would be our maid and they would do be our nanny and do maid's work. Um, so
0: were you raised like middle class or yeah, what? middle class? Middle class.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so one one of these young women uh, happened to be living in guerrilla-occupied territory. And so she started to get threats from the guerrilla groups who had plans to act against our family. So they told her, if you don't you know, participate in this with us, we will start to kill your family or we will hurt you. And so she was 15 when that happened, and I was 13, um, and... You know, ever, ever since then I never stopped thinking about what it would be like to be so young and to have that kind of responsibility in your shoulder on your shoulders. Well to
0: have like an impossible choice.
2: Yeah. Um so it so I I based the book on on that, on these on two girls who come from different worlds whose lives kind of become entwined, um So why
0: did the guerrillas want to act against your family? Is this just extortion?
2: Yeah, it's uh, so in the at the time kidnappings were really common in Colombia, and so I think it was something like one in five people get would get kidnapped. So yeah, and so you don't even have to have a lot of money. Um, Basically, it was the way that the guerrillas were funding their war against the government. So they would take you know whoever. Um, and some people would get, would be returned, you know, that they would, the family would pay the money and then the person would be returned. Other people disappeared. They never came back. Other people, uh, were held for, you know, up to 30, 50 years. Did you
0: know people? Yeah.
1: You did. Yeah. Who?
2: Um, well, my uncle, my uncle was, was kidnapped for, he was kidnapped twice, um, for, for a long time. And my dad was kidnapped, but he, he was, he got really lucky. They, a guerrilla group kind of caught him right after he was, uh, getting off from work. And this was in a more, uh, a smaller village and they, they kind of like marched him into the jungle and they, they bound him. They put him in this shed. He had to spend the night there sitting upright on a chair um, and the next day when they took him to meet the boss of the guerrilla group, uh, he walks into this, into this room and it's his friend from childhood. So, so then the, so then it was just, he describes it as like the strangest, you know, meeting that you can imagine. Cause he's terrified. He doesn't know when he's going to see us again. And. This, this guy who used to be his childhood friend is like, Hilberto, how have you been? Like, it's so good to see you. <laughs> Sorry,
0: we kidnapped you. <laughs> yeah.
2: So they let him go after that.
0: So that's lucky. So that's lucky. My God. And, you mm-hmm. know, like the guerrillas, and forgive me for not having like a super sophisticated understanding of the Colombian um, political situation back then, but like the guerrillas were agitating against the government. Mm-hmm. They wanted power.
2: They wanted power. They're they're left leaning, um, and they were they were reacting against um, the government being centralized and people being corrupt and stealing a lot of money, um, and the government not taking care of uh, you know pe- farmers or people who are have lower income.
0: This doesn't sound half bad. Yeah. But the kidnapping thing, though, it's yeah. Like the, the, the means.
2: Yeah. And they also got into into the drug trade, um, as a as a way to fund their war.
0: Enter uh, Pablo Escobar, mm-hmm. um, yeah. who uh, you know I think most people are familiar with, at least like the the general lore. But growing up in Bogota, and um, you know in that particular time period, and also doing research, I would imagine for your book, and really trying to get um, immersed and to get a full grasp of the nuance of it. Um, you know, how, how large as a child did Escobar loom in your imagination? Was it, was it there Were you sort of insulated from it or is it something that you only came to understand, like in retrospect?
2: He was, he was everywhere, but I think that as kids, we didn't understand really who he was or, you know, what was going on with the gorillas. I don't think any of us understood as children what the difference was between, the left leaning guerrillas and the and the right wing paramilitary. We didn't know why they were fighting, and we didn't really know what role Pablo Escobar had in, in all of it. Um, and but he he was you know ever present, and we we knew the name. And I remember one of the things that we used to play as children was uh, we would play like Pablo Escobar and cops. So, like, you, you play maybe like cops and robbers here. So, that would be our version <laughs> of that.
0: And, like, so was he generally considered bad?
2: So, he was considered so it depended on who you asked. So, he, he was idolized by people from lower incomes, and then everyone who was like middle class and up thought that he was terrifying.
0: That's sort of like El Chapo.
2: Mhm exactly it's yeah like a
0: similar like it's they like culti- a folk
2: he- hero
0: right they yeah. cultivate a kind of but i think too they um these guys who are psychopathic in mm-hmm. their behavior you know that you, you can't deny um they cultivate that kind of robin hood image um, as a way to maybe insulate themselves it's you know that public support they they use it as leverage and mm-hmm. um i don't know
2: I yeah, think. he he definitely there. There was some of his correspondence that got intercepted uh, when he was on the run, and one of the letters, you know, he said he he made a comparison to Robin Hood and how he was trying to cultivate that image uh, in order to have the protection of the of the people, which he did get. You know, when he was on the run, all the hideouts in Medellin that he had. Were connected to houses where he had given that house just to, to a random person, right? Um, and so that when the police came, everybody kind of knew where these hideouts were, but nobody would would collaborate with the police.
0: A because they've been paid, or B because they're terrified. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. one or the other, right? Yeah. So you rule through fear, and and yeah. like I was reading up a little bit uh, before you came over, just mm-hmm. to like kind of refresh my memory. It's staggering how much money at the height of his power the escobar or the cartel what was it called like the medellin cartel yeah the medellin cartel like was uh was generous like 70 million dollars a day in cocaine or what i mean that's i don't even
2: know like is that more money than colombia had
0: i I I mean it's more money than a lot of countries have i think you know but it's a it's a lot of cash yeah and it's also like man who's doing all that cocaine I don't know. People in probably people in the United States.
2: Yeah, I don't think we don't have a cocaine <laughs> we don't have a cocaine problem. In Colombia. Uh, yeah, we don't. It's an export. hmm Well, an and
0: export. it's like you know, I, I wanna say I should know uh better probably, but I do think that the United States was the biggest customer. hmm You know, for all this drug flow, whether it's cocaine or whether in contemporary times it's um these opiates. Yeah. And it's like, what is, what is going on in this country yeah. that we have an appetite for this stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, it's worth asking that question, you know, why are people medicating themselves with this stuff, mm-hmm. um, to this degree? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I could, I could venture some guesses, but it's not, it's not a happy story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, in you know, on some level, I understand that in countries or just among people who don't have access to opportunity or you know economies of scale or whatever um that you know being involved in the drug trade i understand why a person would do it they try i mean yeah, like, it's
2: a job it's
0: a job it's a way to provide and you can mm-hmm. make a lot of money i mean like, i don't know i could see how somebody with uh with no ill intent would get involved
2: yeah i mean i i you know if if you imagine you know people are trying to you know struggling to feed themselves and feed their families uh, you're struggling to even have a place that you can sleep in. To see someone who, you know, is, is kind of driving around in a nice car, just passing out money um, just because he he wants it to be more equal, or, you know, that's what Pablo Escobar used to say. Um, and the there's also a story where he, at some point, when the police raided where he was hiding, he, they, he went into the, into the mountains to hide, and he happened to be with his, with his family, and his daughter was there. So they, they had to, like, spend the night out in the, in the forest, and his, his daughter got cold. So uh, Pablo Escobar decided that they needed to make a fire to keep her warm, and they had, you know, brought with them bags of money— that they didn 't want the government to confiscate, so that he just you know made a little mountain of money and then lit it on fire
0: <laughs> there 's more where that came from i mean yeah. if you 're making seventy million dollars a day, you can make yeah. a, you can make a money fire
2: so to see you know for 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 people who have been kind of like oppressed and left behind by the government to see someone who is doing those kinds of things, so you can understand why they would idolize him
0: absolutely absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, and i 'm also thinking like in Uh, An American context, like I have an eight year old daughter and she's grown up partly in the Obama era and then partly in this Trump era. Mm -hmm. And it's like how to protect her from what's going on right now. I don't want her to have to worry, you know, Like I I don't want her to be completely ignorant to the moment. But I also don't now is not the time at eight years old to get caught up in all of the minutia of um, political corruption and the dangers presented, you know. But uh, I think she just has a general sense that Trump is bad. Mm-hmm. but I try to just keep her away from it. And I, do you think your parents were kind of the same way in Colombia? with, uh, no.
2: no, I think, um, I think generally like South Americans will not protect children from, you know, have like knowing a horrible reality. I don't know if it's because it's perhaps more ever present or maybe it's inescapable.
0: Like you're gonna run into it somehow. Yeah.
2: Like if you're, you know, if if your uncle gets kidnapped, if your father almost gets kidnapped, if right. there are, if there's a car bomb that explodes, right. You know, and that's a few blocks away from your house, and another one explodes, and this one is a block away from your house. Uh, I don't think that you can protect your right. your kid at that point, right. right? You have to explain to them, well, you know, these people did the car bomb, and you know. These are the people that are kidnapping and you also want your kids to be safe so maybe in some way it's it's uh, more necessary that they know. But I think in, in writing the book, I just became interested in how how much children actually understand and how much they misunderstand. Uh, at some point I was um, I, I went back to Colombia and this was one moment where I think it inspired me to, to stick with the point of view of young people, trying to make sense of a political situation. I was walking around with my cousins and two soldiers from the uh, army happened to, to walk by us. And immediately my two cousins were so terrified, like the, the color drained from their face, they, they tried to hide, um, they ran away. So I I went over to them and I was trying to explain like no this that's the that's the Colombian army you don't have to be afraid of the Colombian army, um, and my aunt came over and she was like oh yeah they don't so they don't they can't tell the difference between the the army or the guerrilla or the paramilitary it's just men with guns right um, and that just struck me as so tragic to be at this at this point in your life where you're. The most vulnerable, and you can't make sense of uh, the political situation that surrounds you. Um, so I—that was one of the things that I explored at length in the book—is um, yeah, those funny misinterpretation of like a <laughs> like a vastly complicated political conflict that even adults have problems like trying to make sense
0: yeah but there's also like a simplicity or a not a simplicity like a purity to the perspective of young people where it's not layered with uh these more unnecessary um complexities you know kids have a way of seeing things truly uh Mm -hmm. i don't know like i feel like there can be some wisdom to that especially when you get into Situations where adults have uh, like screwed things up massively and, and gotten mm-hmm. embroiled in um, like intractable yeah. conflict
2: yeah, like in the in the most simple terms, those are just men with guns, right, so that is the that's where that comes from
0: I mean and men with guns are scary mm-hmm. <laughs> right like I don't want to see a man with a gun yeah i like I was just reading yesterday on Twitter. It was like a thread from some woman in Alaska, if I'm recalling this correctly, where she was like, don't let people tell you that guns are safe and that it's just about responsible gun ownership. She's like, we're in Alaska, which is like the land of the gun, you know, tons of people who hunt. And her husband and daughter were sitting in a restaurant and some older guy had a gun that he thought was not loaded, I guess, that he pulled out and it like went off and like a bullet ricocheted around the restaurant. Mm. And like, I mean, all, like there was like a gunpowder or something like that, that like wound up like on her daughter's computer and it was very close, but mm-hmm. thankfully it didn't, she didn't get injured or anything. But I was just like, why, why, what is the allure of weapons? Why are people fetishizing this stuff? Like just put mm-hmm. them away.
2: <laughs> like, I don't know.
0: I have no interest.
2: Have you ever fired a gun? Yeah. You have?
0: Yeah. And it was ter- and it scared me. And like mm. scared me the first time. I was like, Yeah, I don't like this. And I also didn't like the power. Like I fired a ro- like my buddy and I took his grandfather's World War II rifle, which it took these like enormous bullets. And it was one of those bolt action rifles. And I grew up in the Midwest and in in this uh in Indiana and there was this place called Don's Guns. And he used to have commercials. He probably still does. I think he might be dead, but he had these commercials where he was like I don't want to make any money. I just love to sell guns. (laughs) Like that was his tagline. And these commercials were sort of famous. And he had this place. It was like in kind of like a warehousey space, not far from where I lived. And you could just go in there and shoot there, you know, target shooting. And my buddy and I went over there, we were 15 years old with a bolt action rifle. And they were like, sure, no parents. And I just remember shooting once or twice. and like, the sound and the kickback
1: mm.
0: and that power like was just a little scary. And then in college, a buddy of mine had like a forty-five pistol, and we drove up. I went to college in Colorado. We drove up into a, uh, the canyon and set up some beer bottles, and yeah. we're firing it. And I just remember like holding it and just being like, I could turn this on myself and just end my life, mm. or I could turn it on any one of these people and end the life. Like that's too much power. <laughs> in my hands and then just the sound and the whole, the whole project of it just felt off to me. I like, I don't understand how somebody, uh, you know, picks up one of those machines and it's like, this is fun. I like this, Mm -hmm. uh, you know,
2: I, I think the only, the only kind of close encounter that I ever had with guns was in a celebratory moment. So in, when I would visit my family, um, who lived in Cucuta, which is on the it's bordering Venezuela, um, and we so whenever it was the new year, they we would set off fireworks, and then one of the things that my uncle liked to do was to take the rifle, and then fire into the jungle.
1: Well,
0: that's okay.
2: Yeah, fire. so it was very celebratory, and but I, you know, don't remember ever wanting to see it up close, or even to touch it, or even to do that.
0: Yeah, I I guess I'm I, I'm fascinated by people who are drawn to it as recreation. Yeah. Like and, and even even hunting. Like I sort of get that it's a family tradition, but like what's the joy? Yeah. I'm going to go like field dress a deer.
1: Well,
2: like... you know what I started hearing um was from from a lot of uh friends after after uh the election. Uh a lot of my Wh- Which election? After after the Trump election. Okay. A lot of um, women that I know started to take, uh, they just started to go to gun shooting uh, ranges. That's
0: actually fine. (laughs) Ladies should arm themselves. Yeah. It's like
2: it was, you know, how else do you feel empowerment but by this, you know, action?
0: Yeah. I mean, I get it. And there are people who are living in uh, dangerous places where they want a gun for protection and it's hard to argue that, it's, you know, if you're a woman living alone in a neighborhood where there's lots of, uh, you know, assault and crime and yeah. break-ins and stuff like that, I, I kind of get it. But, yeah, uh, I just, I just hate the idea that
2: they're too easy to get.
0: Yeah. 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 Like you can't, you shouldn't be able to go to Kmart and get mm-hmm. like a semi-automatic gun. Mm-mm. That's crazy. It's crazy. Is, and is that like, is there any place else in the world that does that? Is Colombia? can you get a gun that easily in Colombia? I
2: have no idea. I don't know. I'm sure it's easy on the, on the black market. Right.
0: Well, it's easy on the black market here too. Just go go to a gun show or, you know, ask like, I'm sure if you went to a gun show and talked to somebody, you could buy a hundred guns out of the trunk of a car pretty easily.
2: Yeah. That's yeah. It's insane.
0: Um, well, okay. So to go back to Columbia and Escobar, the violence, the kidnapping, the extortion, Um, the political conflict, like all of this is not only the backdrop to your novel, but it's the backdrop to your childhood. Mm -hmm. And you were raised middle-class in a gated neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, like the one that Chula, I mean, there's a lot of crossover I would imagine. And, uh, did you, and you never yourself felt like, were you ever in immediate danger? Did you ever have a situation where you felt like, Oh my God, I'm about to be kidnapped or.
2: Yeah, I did. I was in that situation.
0: Can you explain?
2: Well, um, I, it's hard to explain without because um, I kind of use the skeleton of it to to write the book, so it's hard to explain without giving away major plot points in the novel. Got it. Um, but yeah, I was um, even when I was you know going back to do some research for the book, there were some times where I had to. You know, go to a smaller town, and I had to drive through guerrilla-occupied territory. So yeah, Um, what's the
0: circumstance now? I mean, think Bar is long dead. Yeah. The political situation in Colombia has changed.
2: Yeah. So our biggest uh, guerrilla group, FARC, uh, put down their weapons last year. Right. And we still have one other guerrilla group, which is the ELN.
0: Lots of acronyms in Colombia.
2: Yeah. (laughs) There's so many.
0: (laughs) I can't keep track, but I did, I do remember reading about FARC. I remember yeah. that made like that, that made the news in the states, mm-hmm. which is saying something because our news media very rarely covers it feels like um, yeah. like if, you know uh, political strife in other countries. I feel like it's all about the horse race here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember when FARC dis- disbanded or laid mm-hmm. down its
2: weapons for so ever since I've been young, there's been the peace talks um, and they never amounted to anything. So it's, it's funny to see something finally happen because, you know, I remember there was a moment in the nineties where it seems like FARC was going to put their weapons down and there were all these grand gestures. So some, some FARC, uh, soldiers, you know, had all their weapons melted and they made statues in like, you know, small city centers of.
0: This sounds great. This is what I want with our weapons. Let's melt them and make statues
2: uh but then you know it wouldn't happen and they would you know go back to to being uh part of the guerrilla group and you know uh warring against the the government um so it, for something to finally happen feels amazing uh and i think but colombia has been at war for so long i don't know if anybody remembers what it's like to not to not do that anymore Right, because you know, before before the current one, before the current war that ended with FARC putting their weapons down, there was there was a ten year old war before that, and then there was another war before that, and another one before that. Mm. So to have to have that conflict inherited from generation to generation, at this point, do we do we even know how to live without violent conflict? So when we say like we are at peace and we're pursuing peace, like what does that actually look like? Like nobody can remember. So why? What are we? How are we going to do it?
0: Well, and it brings to mind like uh, I'm thinking of like collective memory, you know, in the context of a country, mm-hmm. and also like uh, national narrative. And it's interesting and alarming how quickly uh, collective memory can shift. I think we're seeing that right now, uh, in America where it's like, I worry about the thing you just talked about, like, are people going to be, be able to remember the way that it was before all this started? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's sort of the project of Trump is to move us away. So people can't even remember a reality where there was the rule of law and there were, um, cohesive, you know, institutions Mm -hmm. and all this kinds of all all these kinds of things. And then, you know, you talk about Colombia or any country, Uh, including the United States, that's trying to work its way out of uh, darkness of one kind or another, you know, you have to start telling new stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually had Steve Almond on the show and he wrote a book called bad stories, which I thought was a great title, but it's all about basically trying to diagnose how we got into this mess. Mm. And it makes, I think a very persuasive case that a lot of it has to do with narrative. Mm. Um, So I don't know what the answers are, but I think it has to start, at some point with some very gifted storytellers telling new stories and having those stories be heard.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, And you know, for the... I know that that's... Anytime that we we kind of break the silence, wherever we do, I always think it's tied to an important cultural moment and a shift that you can open by just voicing something that hasn't been voiced.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I hope for everyone's sake, that it happens. I wonder who those people will be sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder who who's the vessel, you know? And I guess there have to be a lot of them. But, um, you know, the way that media is structured, you know, there are going to be some voices that are way louder than others. And we need good ones, you know, in places where the, the mainstream press is going to pay attention, both, you know, here, Colombia, wherever. Um, so let's talk about the actual nuts and bolts of getting this book written. You know, you had your childhood experiences that have been with you for a while. Um, I'm sure you've probably been thinking about writing this book or or were thinking about writing this book for a while prior to actually getting down to it.
2: Mm -hmm. Correct? Yeah. It was always on my mind, and it was a story that I actually was trying not to tell because it was so – well, part of it was that I – you know, being being an, a foreigner and a p- person of color, I wanted to resist maybe what people expected me to write
0: here in the states.
2: Here in the states, um, and but the other thing was that it was just so there were so many emotions.
0: Isn't that all? Isn't that, that that? I feel like that's a common story for writers, where mm. it's like the story that we really should tell is in many ways the one that we resist or have the most resistance yeah. to because it's painful.
2: You don't want to do it. You don't, don't want to go there. It's yeah. not a pleasant experience. Um, but everything that I that I started to write would turn to that story. So I would try to be just writing about something else, and then the characters would slowly become, you know, resemble me and this and this girl. Um, and so at some point, I did start to to give in to that, and just be you know, just. From sheer just the persistence of it.
0: So you wrote this book in the States?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: When did you come over?
2: So I came over in two thousand two. Um and I was in Chicago and I was going to, to college. And um, where did you go? I went to Columbia College. Okay. Um and it was there was a moment uh in there when i was going through student visas and i couldn't return to columbia and i felt it was christmas there was snow and it was you know i didn't know what snow was (laughs) uh it was very cold um and everyone had gone to their families and i was just alone um
0: why did you why chicago why columbia college
2: I, I had an uh, cousin that lived in the, in the suburbs of Chicago and so I, I wanted to be near family if I could. Um, so then it, I, um, I also started by by uh, studying journalism. So that's how come I ended up there.
0: Got it. And did you like Chicago? Did you come to like it?
2: I came to like it after, after you know the, I got used to the cold. But yeah, the winters, that.
0: my sister lives there, so I know, yeah. and I grew up in Milwaukee, so part of my childhood, so those winters are no joke.
2: Yeah. Especially I mean, coming from Bogota. Yeah, imagine. So, it, you know, the coldest I had ever experienced was like 50 degrees.
1: <laughs> and so people started below. to
2: tell me, like, you need a coat, and I was like, no. You know, I would like see the weather, and it would be like 48 or something, and I would be like, no, I think I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need a coat. Uh, Just not understanding that it was going to get colder and what that meant. Um, And I just remember spending all my money on on one coat and selling that and buying another coat. And just never finding a way to be hot enough. It got to the point where I had to carry with me like a fifth of whiskey <laughs> so, so that, and that was just the only way. Just numb yourself.
0: Just numb yourself yeah, against it. That was it. the
2: only way that I could make it through, through how cold I was.
0: So, were you thinking, you said you were studying journalism. So, you were thinking, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to write for a newspaper? Or? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I didn't know. I, you know, uh, because it, I didn't know anybody who, who wrote books, and I didn't think that was something that was available to me. And I, but I knew that I wanted to write and I really liked language and sentences and stories. Um, and, but I was, you know, back then, I, I want the, the desire to make up stories was so strong that I was just a very bad journalist. Because I would go out and do the assignment, do all the research, get all the material, come back. And then when it got to typing the story, I just wanted to make things up. You know, I just wanted to be not good. a good
0: quality and a yeah. journalist, <laughs>
2: not a good, yeah, it wasn't working out.
0: <laughs> so when did you start to make attempts at fiction, like right there in school or was it, not yeah, it
2: was always, it was always something that I did on the side. Um, and it, and at some point when I was at Columbia, I just transferred to the creative writing department.
0: Oh, you did. Okay. So yeah. you, you... And then
2: I really started to, to study it and do it. And
0: did you, did you, have you written books prior to this one that like didn't no. quite work out or was this the first time? That was ever...
2: the first, that was the first one. I wrote a lot of short stories, um, before as a way to, to learn how to do it.
0: Was there a lot of failure?
2: Yeah. Yeah. There was tons of failure. I wrote stories for a long time where nothing happened and I just couldn't understand what a story
0: was. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> yeah. Stuff has to happen.
2: Things have to happen. Oh
0: shit. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But, I, you know, I feel like that's often the case. Like, pl- I mean, we're talking about plot. Mm-hmm. People who write literary fiction, that's usually a place where they tend to struggle, you know, because they're so invested in character or in the interiors. Yeah. Uh, was that the case with you, you think?
2: Yeah. Um, and it was also this thing where I was trying not to write about Colombia because people kept telling me, like, oh, you're from Colombia. Like, you have all these stories. Like, you it, people would actually tell me, like, you're sitting on a gold mine and I just kept resisting that. Um, you just didn't want to be typecast. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to give in to that. I felt like I just wanted. So I just wrote so many experimental stories where nothing, <laughs> where nothing
0: happened. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you think the resistance was? You didn't want to give into it because what you didn't want to be, what everyone expected you to be.
2: Yeah. That yeah. Was- And I think, you know, and so part of it was that it was just um, I and, you know, in in all my classes, there was I was often the only person of color. So I felt I felt misunderstood all the time. um, And it felt a little corrective that people were like telling me, like, just tell the story of, you know, where you came from and like what that was like. Um, And it, it almost felt like I was being asked to be a tour guide. So, I think that's what I was resisting, got it, and then coupled with the fact that I was you know also resisting this very intense story that I just didn't want to approach for emotional reasons, right so then that meant you know experimental fiction
0: and so what about <laughs> your parents like you your parents are still in colombia
2: they my parents are living in Mexico City now,
0: oh, they are okay so mm-hmm. uh, but when you came to the states for college did you you left home yes and went abroad mm-hmm um and your folks were cool with it, and they were, and you're like, "I'm studying creative writing in Chicago. It's freezing." <laughs> they were on board
2: they were they were on board when it was journalism. right. They were like, "Yeah, that seems like you can make a living off that." And then when it became creative writing, they were like, "What are you doing?"
0: You're like, "Mom, Dad, I'm a poet of the soul."
2: Yeah
0: <laughs> I hate to break it to you.
2: but i I started to work as a translator. And so, uh, I was like, see, I can, I can make a living, I can do it and I can do this other thing. So I did, I did prove to them that I, you know, could, could support myself.
0: And what do they, uh, like what, do they have any like writerly tendencies, your parents, like what do they do no. professionally?
2: So my, so my mom is, was a fortune teller. Okay. And then my dad was an engineer.
0: A fortune teller and an engineer yeah. produced a novelist. Somehow that makes sense to me.
2: Yeah. And you know the so in, in my house there were the books that we had were encyclopedias, a lot of esoteric books, and then a lot of books about communism.
0: Were your parents communists?
2: My dad was when he was when he was young. But then, he was very active. But, but then gave it up. Yeah. Um and yeah, but, but you know what is we as a family we told a lot of stories. And so we had you know, all these nights where we just sit around.
0: Uh, but isn't that, isn't that part of Colombian culture? Yeah. Like I remember reading interviews with uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and talking about like, you know, I think it was, uh, I mean, this was years ago, but he was talking about magical realism and, um, the element of the supernatural and the oral storytelling traditions of Colombia and, you know, in his family. So that's something mm-hmm. that's like, that spans the whole culture.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we love stories. it's our favorite pastime. is to just tell stories out loud. So I think that's where it came from.
0: And your mom was a fortune teller or yeah. is a fortune teller?
2: She was. So she was. She doesn't do it anymore.
0: Was she psychic?
2: Uh I don't know if she would describe herself that way, but I would describe herself. I would describe her that way.
0: I think some I believe in that stuff. I I don't yeah. think it, you know, I don't think anybody bats a thousand. Uh-huh. I've never met anybody, but I visited a psychic twice, uh, once like the day before I left for college and once in my late twenties and she got stuff right that she couldn't possibly have gotten right. Mm -hmm. Uh, she also thought like John Kerry was going to win the 2004 election and you know, so you swing and miss sometimes. Um, but I think there's something to it. I think it's, Mm -hmm. I'm not one of these people who would just dismiss it out of hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: I mean, I've seen her, I've seen her tell people things that I'm like, she's going to get slapped in the face. (laughs) Like that's way too personal. And it's like, so she's going out on a limb. Like, why would you ever say something like that to someone like
0: mother? We're in a restaurant. It's our waitress. And she's like, by the way.
2: Yeah. And then the person is, you know, I just saw so many people just kind of like break down and be like, yeah, that is exactly what's happening in my life. And I need to, I need help, you know? Um, so I just saw I saw things like that happen so much.
0: And did you did you inherit any of this?
2: Um you know the only time that I've done anything like that was when I was I was I was young and I was surrounded by five uh, cousins who are all brothers and I just something just came over me and I just went around and I was like you're going to get married at this age, you at this age, you at this age and I told them their ages when they were gonna get married, forgot about it. Um, and then years later, when the I received an email from the youngest of the brothers, and they were like, and he wrote saying, "We all got married at the ages that you said, and I'm getting married this year, and that's when you said I would get married."
0: So they remembered.
2: So they, so yeah. So I, you know, that's the thing with with um, psychics is that is it is it that it's you're telling the future or is it that I give you an age and then that's in your mind and then you force that to happen?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there, that might be some part of it, but like I, both of my sessions were taped. I haven't like, I still have a cassette tape in my car. There's my daughter. Right there. <laughs> uh, I have a, a cassette tape in my car of the 2004 session. I guess it would have been. And, uh, I don't know. There's some things. Some things maybe like that. Other things are just uncanny. Mm-hmm. You know the specificities. Yeah. This was before I met my wife. She knew her hair color. Like with, with like uh, like with an unusual level of uh, description and nuance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah.
2: I just
0: think there's something to it.
1: Yeah.
2: So well, you know, there there was a moment where, so there was a, a point in when we were living in Bogota. That my mom had this dream where she was in this church and she walked up to the front of the church and there was a casket. My father was in the casket and she just looked down on him and noticed the tie that, she was, that he was wearing. When she opened her eyes, my dad was getting ready uh, for work and he was standing at the foot of the bed. And he was putting on the same tie that she saw in the dream. So she was immediately like, "Oh shit, he's gonna die," but he she didn't tell him. She told us about the dream. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you? Uh, I was. I think I was thirteen.
0: Okay, that's heavy news from mom.
2: Yeah. So yeah. So South Americans parents do not protect children at all. What do you (laughs) think?
0: But what's the better approach? Because like I'm I want to be honest with my kids too. I, I feel like you can do damage by trying to insulate too much. Yeah. It's less about wanting to hide stuff or be sneaky, or withhold the truth, and more about just like that protective urge or something, Mm -hmm. there's plenty of time to be immersed in the bullshit of politics. I mean, yeah. Right? Yeah. And she lives in Los Angeles. She's seeing plenty of darkness. So, you know, there's there's a lot coming at her anyway, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, Wow. Well, that's interesting. And so I'm also curious about your dad's uh, communism, because, Mm -hmm. you know, we live obviously in this, like, um, I think dysfunctional hyper-capitalist country, uh, in the United States, and I feel like the pendulum needs to swing back left, um, pretty badly. I think that's in evidence, you know, at least in terms of our political, uh, organizing principles. But I also know, and I'm, you know, you grew up with this, like there can be perils on the left too, which mm-hmm. I think people on the American left don't necessarily always, um, fully, uh, acknowledge, uh, it can go. It can go dark on that side of the spectrum as well. Like there can be injustices and corruptions and uh, big problems there too. Uh, we just haven't quite seen that. I don't think in the mm-hmm. United States in my lifetime. And so, you know, as I as I sort of suss it out in my head, I'm like, wow, how do we get to a more like collectivist um, mindset in this country where we don't place such enormous emphasis and value on the individual mm-hmm. and on me and mine you know and how much can right. i accumulate and get your hands off my stuff and like that whole um you know attitude uh but at the same time you know if you get too collectivist then there can be concentrations of power and corruptions in that way that manifest in a, kind of a weird mirror imagey kind of way so out of my own curiosity, I'm just curious. Like for somebody who was communist and was reading up on it and was really um, influenced by it, but then to move away, like how how far did the pendulum swing for your dad? Like where did he, he go to? All the way. So now he's like right wing.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, no, he's not right wing, but he's um, he he believes in capitalism. Um, but there's there's moments where I think we went um, we were we were traveling somewhere in Mexico and we went to this very showy church and there was there was like a lot of gems and gold inside the church and then right outside there were there were people that were begging for money and there was this moment where my dad like looked at me and he was like it's it's crazy that there's this building with so many ornate valuables and right outside you know which is what is that for right and then right outside there's there's people who are Struggling to eat. Like, that's crazy.
0: That's right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like, right now, I did, like. there's got to just be some happy median.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, there's got to be a tension point between the two that, that gets close to, I think, like, a little left to center is probably better. I think you should err on the side of collectivism if you're going to lean in one direction, but just not too far. Yeah. And that there could be some sort of hybridized approach that doesn't totally discredit capitalism, but also mm-hmm. doesn't totally discredit the reality that we're all in this together yeah like why can't we make some sort of adult compromise on this (laughs) that makes sense so that people aren't sleeping in the street or begging you know for food and yeah you know there's just got to be a better way yeah i don't know the answer but
2: i don't know uh, either but yeah i i'm with you i'm with you on that
0: uh so you start to write this book um like are you and you're working as a translator is that what you're doing at that point
1: Yes
2: yeah
0: and so like nights weekends early mornings like how did it how did it uh, happen?
2: Um, I was working I was working in the mornings because that's when I when I work best
0: like how how early
2: I usually get up and I do this now um, at around seven and start start writing at like eight and do that for three hours
0: What happens between seven and eight like just eating
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I have this kind of belief that if I do, if I repeat the same actions in the same way that it'll, it'll convince me to stay seated in front of the desk.
0: Like what? Like, like- So
2: just, you know, I like always like put on the same, the same clothes. Well, I have a few outfits that I like rotate between.
0: I get, I get that. It's like a writing yeah. costume. Yeah. It's, it's like your uniform.
2: I put on the costume. Right. Um, I go to the kitchen I always make tea in the same way. It's um, always in the same process. What kind of tea? Uh, well, actually, when I started, it was coffee, but now it's matcha.
0: Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I've tried. What do you sweeten it with? Anything, or do you? Just... No,
2: just I'm just there for the caffeine. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: austere. <laughs> I know. But I'm very because I'm I'm sort of cut from the same cloth. Like I'm all about like creature of habit and. I think there is something to like ritual and discipline and like, yeah. and I think a lot of writers are this way, especially when you're the only person really enforcing any discipline exactly. on your work, yeah. like to have these sorts of rituals is kind of like an insurance it prepares, policy. It
2: prepares your mind. And if you, if you do the ritual in the same way, by the time that you sit down, you've already invested so much time in getting ready to write that it feels impossible to get up and, and walk out.
0: And so it's a three hour session. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, yeah. And the dictionary. Did I read this correctly? Yeah.
2: I so I usually start by opening the dictionary and pointing to a random word, and then. By the
0: way, this is. I feel like this is your mother's influence on
1: you somehow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: I so one of the one of the ways in which I started to really be interested in in storytelling was that I would go to my mother's attic um, or to the attic in our house, which was her fortune telling business. And I would just, when she was bored and there was no one there to see her, she would give herself tarot readings. Um, and she, I was just so enamored with the way that she would flip over a card and it would reveal a new aspect of her life. So it would be, oh, this is me when I was young. And then she would flip something else and it, the story would slowly develop according to what she was flipping over. And so I, I think I think of the dictionary in, in a similar way where it's just like you're turning over something that is random and doesn't come from you.
0: So how does it work? You open the dictionary, you look at a word,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: then you use that word as like a springboard to like some sort of free writing exercise? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I will I will usually write um two fictions and then a truth. Like so it, I,
0: like sentence like sentences.
2: Like paragraphs. Okay. So mm-hmm.
0: give me an example. Can you recall an example of a word that you looked at in the writing process for this recently?
2: novel? Oh, for the novel. Or, or
0: recently. Like I'm
2: Um, for the novel. I don't remember that. I mean, that's so. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean like, like I'm just thinking like was there one word that really like cracked the code for you or like opened the door into the world of the book or was it just sort of that slow grind?
2: It was that slow grind. Um and there were there were things that you know became essays from you know that sprung from that. There were scenes uh in the book in the novel that sprung from that. And there were other paragraphs that are just you know lost and will never become anything.
0: (laughs) Right, and thank God, right?
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, how long did it take you to write the book?
2: So it it was probably six six years, six or seven years.
0: And how many like just draft after draft or like were you working consistently in that like ritual every day pretty much for those six years or were there periods where you kind of
2: periods There were periods where I just life things happened got in the way and I wasn't able to write. Um, like work I, stuff? Yeah. And I also took a I took some years off to start another book um, and then came back to the novel.
0: What was the other book?
2: So the other book is the one that I'm working on now, which is a memoir.
0: Okay. A memoir mm-hmm. about?
2: So it's a, it's a memoir about my grandfather, who was a curandero, uh, which means faith healer. Ah. And people said that he had the power to move clouds. So See, when you say this thing about you know Gabriel Garcia Marquez and oral storytelling and the the supernatural and how close that is to life for Colombians, that's exactly what the what the memoir is about.
0: So okay, so uh, curandero uh, like a shaman because mm-hmm. yeah. I've been reading about. I have books. There's a book right here, <laughs> shamanic voices right here oh, on my desk. Yeah, there you go. Um, but I'm I'm interested in like indigenous peoples and like these traditions
2: mm-hmm.
0: that. Um, you know, feel very far from American culture, but I think there's a lot of merit. You know, I think people, um, I think it's possible that some people do have some kind of deeper level of connectivity with the natural world
2: mm-hmm.
0: and might have the ability to move clouds. Like I I have the ability to be open to the possibility that that's real. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I mean,
2: I want to live in that world, right? Yeah. Like, that seems a better world than living in a world where that can't happen.
0: I agree. I mm-hmm. also think that I am mistrustful of the, like n- narrowing my field of possibility too much and looking at the world and thinking like, oh, I got this. Like, there's no yeah. way, you know, like, who, who am I to say? I know. Uh, you know, I think that there is something to be said for like the scientific method and rationality and evidence-based procedure and all that kind of stuff. But I think there also has to be some room in our existence for some magic. Yeah. Um because what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, like like really? Like what is it? Like it's kind of incredible that this is all happening and
2: I think that every day. Do you what really? What the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. Right?
0: That's your first line in your uh free writing exercise? Yeah. Um <laughs> uh, so your grandfather was a There, Did did you know him well?
2: He so he died. He passed away when I was one year old.
0: Okay. But you heard mm-hmm. stories obviously.
2: I heard stories. So it, what happened was um, he was he was supposed to pass down the knowledge to one of his sons, but he didn't think that any of his sons could have the knowledge. So what he said about them was that they didn't have the testicles. Really? To be, <laughs> to be a curandero.
0: Harsh, Dad. So harsh. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so when you say curandero and you say faith healer, were there uh, like plant medicines and mm-hmm. like there
2: like... were it was there were plant medicines there were there were prayers there were uh, you know concoctions sometimes he would just pray over water and then give water to someone and that was the medicine.
0: What about like psychedelics?
2: Uh, I don't know.
0: So it's I not like heard... an ayahuasca or something. No, 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 not like that.
2: No, it was just more. You know, this plant is good for this, and
0: uh... it's like a naturopath.
2: Yeah. But he also, so he had a business card, which is fun. Um, Do you and still it, have it? Yes, oh. I have it. Yeah. So it says um, Rafael Contreras A, that's his name, uh, homeopath, which is a polite word for curandero. Okay. And then it would say, cures you of all kinds of diseases, um, diabetes, obesity, um, cancer, and witchcraft.
0: He can cure you of witchcraft?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you know how?
2: Uh, I don't. I mean, because he didn't pass
0: it down. He didn't pass down the knowledge.
2: Yeah. Well, so what happened was that um, he, the only person he thought could have the knowledge was my mom, but she, you know, is a woman, and so he, it wasn't allowed for some reason. It's
0: a patriarchal situation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um But then my my mom had an accident where she fell down a well. And she lost her memory for eight months
0: how old when, when how old were you when this happened?
2: well she was she was young when this happened she okay. was she was maybe like eight eight years old. But when she came back too, and she like recovered her you know all her memories came back, she could hear voices and she could hear she could see uh, ghosts. So then the family was like, oh, the you know, he wasn't allowed to teach her, but the teachings just kind of came to her through this accident. Um, and then I had an accident where I, you know, lost my memory.
0: What
1: happened?
2: I was I was riding my bike in Chicago, and somebody opened their their car door, oh, and I no. just slammed into it. I wasn't wearing a helmet. It was stupid.
0: That's how I ride my bike in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I got to ride. Everyone always tells me to wear a helmet. Yeah,
2: wear a helmet.
0: Really? Yeah. Okay.
2: But, um, so then I lost my memory for eight, eight weeks and when...
0: Like, so amnesia is yeah. the diagnosis. Yeah. You're like Jason Bourne.
2: Exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who I am. <laughs> I'm paranoid.
0: What well, like, so, okay. Do you remember if you lost your memory, you lost your previous memories, but yeah. now that you've regained your memory, do you remember what it was like to not have your memory?
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: What was is. that like?
2: It was, uh, I don't think I've ever been happier in my life.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Did you, did you know your name? Like what I didn't know
2: my name. Uh, I didn't know what I looked like at some point. I didn't, I didn't know if I was a, uh, a woman or a man. This is like, this is
0: more like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind than Jason Bourne actually.
2: I guess. Yeah. I guess. Like the
0: weight of all of that psychic baggage is just gone.
2: Yeah, it was just – all I knew was that I was in this in this adult body and that every possibility was open to me. And I wasn't kind of – I wasn't rooted in anything. And so it was just very freeing and it was just joyous.
0: Were you institutionalized?
2: No. <laughs> no
0: but I mean like no. What do you do with somebody who's got amnesia? You let them go so, home? So,
2: well, I um, – I decided that I liked that feeling so much that I didn't want to anybody to fix it. So I didn't tell anybody that I didn't have a memory or that I didn't know (laughs) they were.
0: This is not a conversation I expected (laughs) to have. See, this is why I like to do this show. So, so you uh, get into this bike accident, you hit your head pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have no memory of the accident, I would imagine.
2: I you know I actually I didn't remember like I remembered hitting the the door and flying in the air and I remembered hitting my head but I couldn't remember where i had come from
0: where did you have like a, a bump or a bruise like where where did you hit your head like what part of your head i think
2: it was the back it was the back of my of my head okay and where, it was a strange feeling where i feel like i felt my brain actually like slosh uh, yeah
1: okay what part, <laughs>
0: <laughs> what part of chicago were you in uh
2: i was i was somewhere where was i i was in madison Halstead.
0: okay trying to, I don't know. I wish Mm -hmm. I, I, that's like one of those times where you ask that question and you're like, I don't even know why I (laughs) am. Like I'm suddenly going to be like, Oh, Madison and Halstead. But I might like what part, like North side, South side.
2: Uh, that's north. it's by the, it's by the, uh, river. Um, and it's, I think it's, um,
0: like downtown.
2: Yeah. It's close to downtown. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I have been by Madison and Halstead. Who Mm -hmm. knows? Uh, so you hit your head you have amnesia? Are you do you, you take into the hospital?
2: So so what happened was I so my first idea was that I should marry someone with money. So that and I was like it just started to hatch this plan where I was like if I just stand by a building where rich people work, somebody's going to come out and you know they they're just going to love me. <laughs> How did that work out? Did you do it? I well I started to do it. Well then I thought that actually I should go and try to get on a boat and just <laughs> you know, I don't know. Become a sailor. This was my idea.
0: Sweet, and this is in the immediate aftermath. This is in
2: the immediate aftermath. No
0: trip to the doctor. No. You just like got up, dusted yourself off.
2: I was like, oh, I have no memory. Cool. I should like, I can start a new life if I wanted to.
0: For eight weeks.
2: Well, okay. So hold on. You're getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> uh, but then I was I was deciding between these two things, and I caught my reflection off a, of a window. That was dark. And uh, for the first second, I thought that I had just made eye contact with another person. But then because it, the eyes kind of like reflected every inch of what I was thinking and going through, I understood in the next second that I was looking at myself. And it was this incredible moment where I was like, "Oh my God, I'm a woman, and <laughs> <laughs> look at me, <laughs> yeah, um, but like, no idea is, what your name was. This is what my face looks like, and it it was it was a sense of wonder that was also hand in hand with uh feeling heartbroken that I didn't know where this body had been or what had happened to to this body, so um. I think I think at that point I started to uh, wanting to figure out uh, how I could find my way back into the, into the life that you know I had previously had seconds before, <laughs> um, and I I, ha- I had a bag with me so I like looked through my bag. I had a journal and I like flipped through it. Didn't recognize my own handwriting, which was, was so weird and strange. Um, You're and like, then, whoever this
0: person is, she can really write. Yeah.
2: She's, she's
0: a genius. <laughs>
2: um, I didn't read anything too closely, actually. But I, I pulled out my phone, and I just called the last person that I had talked to. Oh, good. And then...
0: I was going to say, how did you get home?
2: Yeah. So I so I was like, hey, uh, how's it going, Jeff? Because that was the name. <laughs> <And> the, <laughs> I didn't know who they were.
0: He's like, I'm your doctor? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your accountant. Why are you calling me?
2: Yeah. It was my it was my brother in law. Okay. So he was like, Oh, you know, like, have you talked to your sister? And I was like, No. And I actually told him, like, I actually just fell off my bike and he asked, Oh, have you called Jeremiah? Which uh I found out was my fiance at the time. So, you know, I hung up with Jeff, I called Jeremiah and he he came to to get me and he took me to the er but at the er you know they scanned my brain the doctor was like so it looks like you have a concussion are you having trouble remembering things and i was like no i remember things perfectly like i'm i'm good like i know everything <laughs> but he the doctor told uh my fiance that he that night, he, he had to wake me up every half hour and ask me questions that I would know the answer to. Like, where are you born? You know, where were you born, and what year is it? And these were all things that I didn't know. <laughs> wow. So it's just
0: like I'm, this is this could be like a movie. I feel like this yeah. is like a rom com <laughs> or something. Like a woman with amnesia in the yeah. city. And then eventually, I mean, eight weeks is a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining that the intensity of your memory loss was receding over Mm -hmm. the. It wasn't like some snap and suddenly it all came back.
2: Yeah, every time that I went to sleep and woke up, something would would return. So the memory came back in in little bits and pieces.
0: Did you have post concussion syndromes that were like unpleasant, like physically? Like, were you headaches and all that kind of stuff? I
2: had. I had. I felt really, really tired. and I would also just get panic attacks, but I don't know if it was from, you know, the secret that I was keeping <laughs> or, or if it was a, a side effect of the of and the, the secret
0: medication. being that like, I actually love this and I don't remember anything.
2: Yeah. And I don't want to remember. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Your memory came yeah. back. I, like yeah. condolences. <laughs> I sort of get that though. That would be in a weird way, like super liberating. And yeah, I imagine like experiencing life with, and everything seems sort of new,
2: Hmm yeah it was it was you know wonderful it was just an amazing experience
0: wow are you gonna write about it
2: yeah oh so when uh when my family found out that i lost my memory and when it came back they they were like oh can you see things like your mom could and can you do you hear voices now or do you have prognostic dreams um and you know none of those things happened for me so the whole family was like disappointed they were like oh you know like you went through She's the same a failure yeah <laughs> You had the accident like your mom, and you lost your memory like your mom. Like, what happened?
0: Well, I think there's a difference, though, in that your mom being stuck in the bottom of a well was probably traumatized by her accident, whereas, like, you popped up,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: you were like, this is lovely. Yeah. <laughs> your kid being at the bottom of a well. Yeah. Like, that's...
2: Yeah, that's intense.
0: Yeah, that's a trauma. hmm But you weren't traumatized. I wasn't. You were traumatized by your memory coming back.
2: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's incredible. So, uh, is this going to work its way into a book? Yeah. I I know that you, I know that you have sort of like this resistance to people telling you that you're sitting on a gold mine, but I feel like this is a good story.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. So this, um, it's, it's going to be part of the memoir about my grandfather because it's all a story about what gets inherited and kind of like repeating stories, um, across generations. So there's, um, just weird parallels with me and my mom, but also with my mom and my grandfather. Um, so it's all kind of a, a family memoir about memory and the supernatural. What
0: do you mean about parallels from generational parallels? Like, so, mm-hmm. like like you hitting your head, your mom falling on the well? Yeah. You think these things repeat?
2: Well, um, they did repeat. What do you mean?
1: I
0: don't know. I mean, like, but I mean, like, like, do you think that it's like that's a thing, like, it, like not just with you, but with all people that, like, we we have like echoes from one generation to the next, and that if certain things happen to one generation, they're more likely to repeat themselves.
2: It feels that way, doesn't it? Like, there's, it. It almost feels like if there's, um, some unresolved, you know, something with your father. Sometimes it feels like you start to. To tread on those same issues.
1: Yeah. I I feel
2: like on on some level that happens to everyone.
0: Well, and like, you know, this interconnectedness thing, like the, the reality is that you are your grandfather Mm -hmm. on some level, like his DNA is your DNA and his being is deeply tied into yours. Like Mm -hmm. it's all in there somewhere. Yeah. And, and so on back through infinity, like, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So I guess there's some sense to that. Uh, which makes me sit here wondering, like, what's coming for me? Yeah. <laughs>
2: like, what, what have I not lived yeah. through that well, yeah, my parents it, were not able to solve? Right.
0: Or, or like my great-grandparents or, you uh-huh. know, God knows what happened back in the day. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're working on this memoir and, like, having written a novel. I mean, I guess the novel's also in an autobiographical vein, but mm-hmm. you have a lot more latitude to to play with um, narrative. Like, do you have, uh, lessons learned from having worked in both modes and is there one that you prefer?
2: Um, I did, I, I think I learned so much about how a, how a story can be told across many pages. And I think that's maybe the hardest thing to learn as a writer because you know, you, everyone starts with a short story. And you learn how to balance tension and uh, conflict in in a few pages.
0: Speak for yourself. <laughs> You're still working on it.
2: <laughs> but with longer work, it's learning how to do that and how to sustain that is one of the hardest things that I had to figure out how to do. Do,
0: do you outline?
2: Um, I like to write a first draft where I don't plan. I just kind of let the the story lead me. I mean, going back to that idea of turning over tarot cards and letting something random dictate where you go.
1: Mm.
2: I try to do that when I'm writing. I just try to let myself be open and just kind of hear into the void of what I'm writing to and, and let that
0: what, what do you mean dictate. what you're writing to? Because like yeah. I say this because I lately have been like, you know what, I'm just gonna show up. I'm gonna show up. I'm starting to write by hand now, just to like remove myself from the computer where mm-hmm. I'm way too likely to like get onto the internet. Mm-hmm. And I just show up and I just let myself write whatever I want to write about I can write about it's basically just like journaling and I'm like I like this is this feels good I'm getting work done I'm getting words on the page, but there's no unifying theme I'm not telling a story do you know what I'm saying like when you say you're writing <laughs> yeah. to something like do you have some sort of structure in your mind or some sort of plot or character or some organizing principle around which you're letting yeah, yourself be free?
2: I think it always, it always starts with some, there's some conflict that feels that it can be, it can't be solved easily. And once I have that, um, I just start to, it's, I just, you know, what it looks like is I'm just sitting in front of the computer and I'm just staring off into space and I'm trying to keep my mind blank and then something will, will come from that, I mean, it's a weird process. It's like hard to. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no, it's,
0: it's like letting your, you yeah. have to let your subconscious do some of the mm-hmm. work. Like it's all yeah. kind of lurking down there, and you have to kind of get out of your own way.
1: Mm-hmm. But you seem yeah.
0: like you can do that. Yeah, and you've created your little method. I like that. I like <laughs> that you've created like everybody does it kind of their own way, and I think that you know there's there's certain similarities, but I love when someone's like got like a system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm gonna have my matcha i yeah. wear one of these outfits, sit in this chair. <laughs> it's uh, going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I, you know, uh, discipline equals freedom. That's I always mm-hmm. joke to my wife about that. I'm always, because I get up at like ungodly hours.
2: You do? What time? Like 4.30. Oh, why?
0: Just because it's the only time I can have to myself without any guilt over being like neglectful dad or, you know what I'm oh, saying? okay. Like, yeah. If I want to go hiking or mm-hmm. I want to write or I want to exercise or read or, you know, like I, that's my time. mm and I know that no one is like secretly, like sitting in another room going, wish dad was here, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, I also feel like I get more done and I just feel better. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like to get up. I like to see the sunrise. Mm. Like, that's a big deal to me. Mm. I'm like, I don't want to miss that. Like, that's a good moment in the day. Mm. And, uh, I like, especially living in a loud, like noisy, crowded city. I like how quiet it is. Like I'm sort of hungry for some solitude, or not solitude, well, solitude, but also just like some quiet. Yeah, that's the only time to, to get even like some semblance of it in yeah. Los Angeles.
2: Quiet is so important when you're trying to write.
0: It's it's important, period. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm not saying you have to live in some sort of like void, but if you have not experienced any kind of silence recently, like it's worth seeking out because mm-hmm. it's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I
2: have a noise canceling headphones. Yeah.
0: She's actually wearing them right now <laughs> <laughs> in case you notice a delay. Um, so, okay. So you're working on this memoir. How close to being done are you?
2: I, um, so I, you know, I have a hard time starting a project if I don't know what the beginning is. So I've been working, I, you know, did all the research for the book. Did all the interviews, you know? Did all the travel, um, and I've for for the two years that I've been working on it, I've just been trying to find the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I have about, um, you know, maybe like a hundred pages that are different beginnings of different scenes that I thought could be the beginning <laughs> of the of the memoir. And just this past December, I found the real beginning
0: are you willing to share
2: the, what the real beginning is? Yeah. Um, so it starts with, um, it starts with this idea of, of inheritance and, uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain now that you've put me on the spot.
0: (laughs) I think starts with an, I think inheritance as the theme to begin with makes some sense. Yeah. And whether or not, you know, what do you inherit from your, uh, like I think about it in the sense of like, How much is genetically predetermined Mm -hmm. versus how much like free will and uh, control over my own situation do I have? And you know what I'm saying? Like how much are you boxed in by what's passed down to you? And then, you know, on a more like uh, supernatural or magical level, like what – generationally needs to get worked out <laughs> Yeah, yeah. from one to the next. And yeah. like, it, like, is there some like larger fabric that we're all woven into? Mm-hmm. And is this more of a group project than might immediately meet the eye? Yeah. I think that I know the answer. I know the answer that I'm imagining. I know the answer to the question from your perspective is that like from generation to generation, we're all connected and we're working out things from one to the next.
2: I th- I think so. I think sometimes well sometimes you want that connection to happen and sometimes it doesn't. Um and sometimes it does. So I don't think there's an absolute um way that you inherit everything. But um you know, one of the, one of the things that it it seemed to me when I was um uh, Thinking about writing the book, that it, it was one of the reasons why it was like hard to, to tell the story was because it was so far into the past. But one of the things that happened was that my uh, two aunts and my mom had the same dream. So it you know independently of each other, like the same week they dreamt the same thing. Which was my grandfather uh, coming to each of them saying, "I want my remains uh, dug up, and I want them moved." So because they, that happened and it was like a shared dream, we decided that we needed to go and do that. Um, wow. So that, so that's actually, so that's actually the beginning of the memoir is just this shared dream has happened and then we're all going to travel and, and do that in Colombia.
0: That's a good beginning.
2: Yeah. Right. I'm pretty happy with it. Well, I think I mean, it'll work.
0: That's incredible. <laughs> this dream, this shared dream. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, and now you live in San Francisco. Yes. How'd you get there? You were like, I just got to get out of this cold.
2: Yeah, part of it was just the the winter was too much, Um, and my my partner uh, started to go to grad school in uh, in the Bay Area, so that's why we moved. And then once we were in nicer weather, I was like, why go back? You know, just like (laughs) that's
1: how how I feel about
2: like
0: leaving LA. It's like I, you know, I'm always like, where else would we live? And I'm like, I don't know if I like, I'm so used to not having to deal with weather. Mm -hmm. It seems like such a dumb thing to say, but I'm like, I'm not sure if I can deal with weather. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I grew up dealing with it, so I'm sure I could figure it out, but I'm in no rush. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, you live in San Francisco. You've had a great publication success with this debut. You're working on a memoir. It's got a great beginning. Mm -hmm. You have your memory back. Yeah. Or at least most of it. <laughs> um, and then you went on Seth Meyers. If we're going to bring this full circle, I guess mm-hmm. I should ask like, how large is my face? Like, what are you seeing here? <laughs> is it an overwhelmingly large face or is it okay?
2: I think it's, it's average. It's average size.
0: You heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, well, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I appreciate you taking the time to come over and talk with me. And, uh, again, congratulations.
2: Thank you so much. It was so fun to come talk to you.
0: Okay, that is Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Her debut novel, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, is available now from Doubleday Books in hardcover. You can find her online at IngridRojasContreras.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at Ingrid underscore Rojas underscore C. Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Go get your copy immediately. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this show, patreon.com otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me letters at otherppl.com, tell me a story, let me know what you think. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. All episodes of this show are free. Go get it. It's all there. Next week on the program... By the way, I forgot to mention this at the top of the show. I think I'm going to start telling you who's on the following week. Just give you a preview. Next week on this program, I have Duke Haney. He's got a new essay collection out. It is wonderful. It is called Death Valley Superstars. If you you like Hollywood, if you like... uh, artists with like a very strong rebellious streak if you like film history if you like i don't know just great writing it's an excellent book a lot of it was originally published on the nervousbreakdown.com, now helmed by joseph grantham the new editor-in-chief he took over for me do you know that write to him send him stuff